it was always emphasized specifically in enterprise sales that if you want to win deals or close big deals, you need to be seeing the customer X amount of times, whatever it is. And I'm curious to see when we get back to a more normal state, is it still going to be necessary or required to visit the customer on site face to face? I don't honestly don't know the answer to that. I certainly miss some level of travel. I don't miss as much travel as doing at my peak, but I don't know if customers are going to want to see us. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Vince Beese. He's the head of enterprise sales at Customer, which was just acquired by Facebook just very recently. Vince has been selling big deals into the enterprise and leading enterprise sales teams in the SaaS space for a long time. And we have a great conversation today about some of the big changes we've seen in enterprise sales this past year. Now, Vince and I dive into which changes we think will be permanent and which were or perhaps are just temporary stopgaps. We also dig into the topic of whether the whole quote-unquote modern selling movement has been sort of overhyped, oversold, and is in fact maybe in need of a little retooling itself. Now we get into this and much, much more, but before we get to Vince, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So let's jump into it with Vince. Vince, welcome to the show. Welcome back to the show. What am I talking about? That's right. Welcome back. Long time. Yeah. And not first time. Not first time. That was, you know, anything that happened before the start of COVID, uh, just a distant <laughs> memory. I hear you. So, because it was only just a little bit over, well, I guess, almost a year and a half now where I keynoted at your conference in yeah, North Carolina. Which we had to cancel for this year, as you could imagine. Yes. Um, which we moved to a virtual version of that smaller scale down for September. We'll see what happens. Okay. Uh, and then we moved the live one and are hopeful that in April of 2021, we'll be able to do T-Rex Summit live again. But who knows, right? So we're being cautious and doing the right things right now. Yeah. Well, it's the perfect question to ask. Who knows? So where have you been uh, keeping yourself safe over the last uh, six months? So since you and I last probably caught up, I joined a um, startup called Customer, Customer with a K. Yes, you went back to the the real world. Back to my CRM roots as well. Like I started my whole startup career in CRM. I uh, was the original head of sales at LivePerson a billion years ago and kind wow. of cut, it cut my teeth in that this industry. So it's exciting to be back in the industry at, a, I think, an innovative company in the space. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what was the impetus to, to give up your own gig? I mean, you'd worked for yourself for six, seven years. Yeah. You know, the, the thing you miss about when you're in um, a role of sales consultant or advisor is you're certainly providing value and that feels good, but you're never really part of something. Um, and I miss being really part of something um, that, and also tied, I do have some history with the customer. I, I, I know their um, some of their investors have a good mm-hmm. relationship with them. I had met the founder um, basically right after he started the company. So there was some relationship and comfort there. And um, the discussion was really, we, we, we think we can go up market Vince, and you know, if there's a, an opportunity to work together, let's think, let's think this through and see how I can help. So I'm heading up what's called enterprise, which means we're going after now the big 
global um, enterprise customers and seeing if we can uh, increase our market share through these types of relationships. And do you have a, a team? Very small team. You know, because again, as we're looking at this as we're being wise, right? And learning and experimenting and making sure we have everything we need to really expand. So um, we will be growing as we continue to add more and more partnerships there. Got it. So give us sort of a yeah, ideal customer profile for one of your enterprise accounts and what, what a deal might look like. Yeah. So first it's a, it's a SaaS, you know, platform. Sure. Um, and it's a seat license model, right. Similar to the other uh, solutions in the industry. Um, and our profile, the customer we're looking at is, you know, today it's uh, a company that has a thousand plus employees um, that there is pain when it comes to customer service and support. Um, obvious pain uh, mm-hmm. that we think we can help. And typically that obvious pain is they can't communicate bi-directionally through omni-channel. And what I mean by omni-channel is not siloed channels like phone and live text and SMS and email. I mean a common thread through each of those channels. And that's our value proposition, right? Is for the agent, the person who's responding to the customer, it's all in one window to be able to respond to the customer and resolve problems quickly because you have the right tools in front of you to be able to do that through all the different channels. And for the customer, it creates a better customer experience because, gee, guess what? You're able to get to a live person uh, that can resolve your issue. Or better yet, you can get to tools like self-service to get the answers yourself. So we're looking for folks that are on legacy systems. Uh, I won't name them. I think you probably mm-hmm. know who they are. We're having a lot of success of making those migrations. Zendesk. Um, could be Zendesk. Could be this small company called Salesforce as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we're going after them because we have a differentiated solution in the market. And it becomes very apparent once we talk about the problem and talk about how we're solving that problem in the marketplace. Yeah. Well, let me ask you a question about... Mm-hmm. So what was it about you that they were hiring? Well, Andy, come on. That's just a silly question <laughs> when you think about it. I mean, hello. What is this, an alley-oop? Seriously? Uh, no, it all jokes aside, you know, I spent 21 years of my career specifically, you know, driving enterprise business. You know, I mentioned live person before. I mean, we mm-hmm. went from, you know, small business, but during my tenure there, we went up market. And there I kind of stayed in SaaS enterprise, you know, B2B SaaS enterprise. And I really love it because I love the strategic nature of these deals. So it's my history, right? Uh, My record and my familiarity, again, with the investors and the, you know, the founder. Um, Mm -hmm. And and the the willingness, honestly, that that I basically, you know, if you look at my profile, I've taken a step back, right? I've given up a lot of responsibility that I would typically go into an organization with, right? So... I, I purposely did that because I think this is a great opportunity to help this company really scale and and uh, in a very big market. Well, so when you, yeah, I mean, to a degree, you sort of stepped off the fast track when you started your own yeah. your own business, mm-hmm. and because you'd had some very senior roles, um, yeah, live person, sugar CRM, and so on. Um, so I was thinking, what was driving you to make that step at that time? Yeah, sort of get off the the Ferris wheel. Yeah, you know, so you know, I, I the year before two thousand late two thousand eighteen into two thousand nineteen, I I took over a soft a fledgling software company um, to see if I could turn it around, um, commercialize it, if not commercialize it, 
go find a buyer. Mm -hmm. So into that process, it became apparent to me that I think the better path for me on this is to start seeing if there's an, um, is there, if there's a market out there to purchase the assets of this company. So I spent about 18 months on that uh, endeavor. And at the end of it, it didn't turn out the way I wanted to. So, you know, it got me thinking that whole process near the end, well, do I want to go back to, you know, sales consulting again, or do I want to again, go back to uh, being part of a, a, a journey, a ride. And again, I started, I, I did what a lot of people do is I created a spreadsheet and I put on that spreadsheet things that are important to me, pros and cons. And if I was going to join a company, what's important to me. And if I was going to go do my own thing, what was important to me on that side? And, and, uh, I, I evaluated different opportunities, quite frankly. Um, and that's where at that time, you know, pre just before pre COVID, I felt that this was the best opportunity for me right now. And by the way, interestingly enough, I signed my offer letter the first week in March. That same week, customer announced that they were going remote because of the outbreak, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I probably only met seven of my colleagues face to face because um, we all went remote. and We've just been Zooming since then. So it's interesting time to join a company during a pandemic, um, quite frankly. I know now it's probably a little bit more common, but when I did it, it was like, wow, just, yeah, you know. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so are you going to be leaving North Carolina? I don't have to. We, we, we have announced we're a remote first company. I mean, okay. There you go. I mean, why what, would leave North Carolina, go pay more taxes somewhere else? I mean, <laughs> no, I'm think I'm good. <laughs> well, you live in a beautiful area. So, um, just thinking back about yeah, doing your own thing is is always interesting talking to people who've made that step and is and gone back into the real world mm -hmm. is is what value yeah do you think you or proficiency or skills or additional talents you developed by being on your own you know there's a yeah you know, individual contributor as a manager or as just a you know human yeah you know what I really enjoyed the last bunch of years either doing the sales consulting or taking over that new endeavor software company. <clears throat> when you're put in that sort of roles, you really have to expand your skill set because you have to do everything. You know, when I was running my B2B sales consultancy, I, you know, I collaborated with people and I had some folks that would pay as freelancers, but for the most part, you know, I had to come up with messaging, right? Uh -huh. I had to come up with, well, how, who am I targeting and how am I targeting them? So it's like, not just talk to talk, but I had to walk the walk. So, you know, that was hugely beneficial. And then taking over a software company, think about it. I had to do everything from paying bills to figuring out legal stuff um, to doing the, I mean, everything you, you think about it, um, every single step and a part of the business sure. I had to touch. So I think, you know, I think that's beneficial for anyone to have to do everything in every role of the company to whatever you decide to do thereafter, whether it be I want to be an individual sales contributor or a BDR or a sales leader. Being understanding the full aspect of a company and go to market is extremely valuable skill set to build up. I agree 100%. I mean, I recommend it to people. Yeah, you know, take take a step off. Yeah, you know, it's not going to it's really not going to hurt your career. <laughs> if anything, I'll make it more valuable is to do just what you talked about is is yeah. Do your own thing. Become responsible for the entire business. Uh, you'll look at your customers from a different perspective. You'll get business from a different perspective. 
you have to master skills you would never have had to encounter before. And I think, yeah, I think if you're serious about a long-term career in sales, you need the break for one. Yeah, And you know, you, you're, you're never going to be great at everything. And I think by doing that, you also learn what you are great at. Like, oh man, you know what? After doing all these things, I'm really good at these three things and need improvement on these two other things. And you know what? Those three other things, I, I just, <laughs> wherever I go, someone else should be doing those because I'm not good at that. So that's what it's taught me. And it's reiterated yeah. kind of a lot of things that you forget about yourself and, and, and what you enjoy too. Like, I'll tell you right now, like, you know what I really enjoy, Andy? I, I love the strategic nature of going after big deals and thinking about mm. every step of like, mm-hmm. what are we going to do now? We just had this meeting. Now what's our next step? Because as you know, we talked about this thing. Deals aren't linear, right? There's, no. there's, <laughs> there's movement back, forth, sideways. And I, you know, and I'm a, a strategic thinker. So I really love that, the challenge and how it makes you think about how you're going to, you know, position yourself um, mm-hmm. why you're the right solution, what are the resources you need internally? Like it, I don't know. I just find it fun. It's kind of like if you like chess, you know, you would like strategic sales, right? Yeah. No, I identify hundred percent because I spent a good chunk of my career selling very large strategic enterprise type deals. And yeah, for the same reason as one is, is yeah, just the challenge of understanding how this company was going to get their shit together to make the decision and what role would I play in making that happen? And, and also just, you know, dealing with with individuals, uh, you know, with something you don't get on sort of transactional sale is, is when you deal with, you know, complex deals in the enterprise Mm -hmm. is everybody has two sets of objectives. They've got their, this is good for the company. And then it's like, what does this mean for me personally? And if you don't, understand all of those for everybody that's involved and find a way to align those and reconcile those, you know, you're not going to get the deal done. Mm. And that part was just fascinating for me. That's the part I really enjoyed is, is yeah, how do I, because I know everybody's got their own personal agendas. They've got a company agenda. How do we bring these together at the right time with the right way? Yeah. Now, look, I'm still entrepreneurial. I still do things that um, don't interfere with my full-time job. I still host a podcast less frequently because I enjoy doing that. I still, as we mentioned before. Well, uh, the name is not less frequently. The name is, what's the name of your podcast? Oh, (laughs) best-selling podcast. Best-selling podcast, yes. And I still do um, the event with uh, Eric, uh, uh, you know, the T-Rex Summit that will be 100% virtual once this year. So, you know, it keeps me busy. I like that. I like having different challenges and doing different things. And, you know, everyone should have some sort of side hustle because it just, it just, it keeps you, it keeps you more. I think it only enhances what you're doing full time by doing those mm-hmm. other projects, right? Well, you're continuing to learn and gain proficiency. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and we've talked often on in the past about all well, the changes have come into sales over the years. Mm-hmm. And certainly, we've seen over the last six months uh, big mm. sea changes. Uh, interested in your opinion? Are, which of them are temporary and which are permanent? So the one I've been talking about lately is you know it was always emphasized specifically in enterprise sales that if you want to win deals or close big deals, you need to be seeing the customer x amount of times, whatever it is. And I'm curious to see when we get back to a more normal state. Is it still going to be necessary or required to visit the customer on site face to face? I don't honestly don't know the answer to that. 
Um, I certainly miss some level of travel. I don't miss as much travel as doing at my peak, but I don't know if customers are going to want to see us. Do you know what I mean? Uh, well, it's yes. I think that is a big question. That's that's uncertain what the answer is. I personally, if you're asking my opinion, is is yeah, is that travel is going to be used the way smart companies use travel the way it should be used, which is and I you know, come from you know background of working in startups where we couldn't afford to travel mm-hmm. a lot, right? So we use travel very strategically. It's like, yeah, I was selling a lot overseas, uh, you know, large multi-million dollar deals. Maybe we'd visit in person twice over the course of a year. Um, sometimes just once. You know, the first big deal I did overseas, uh, several million dollars in Scandinavia. Yeah, I was just there once when we signed the deal. So, you know, you had to do it when it was going to have an impact, right? And it was going to move the deal forward. And so I think companies are going to go back to that. Is let's be much more discerning about how we're going to use travel and then let's use it to our competitive advantage. Because I think a lot of people are going to try to say, look, well, we can just do this all remotely. And while you may be able to, I'm a firm believer, maybe it's just because of my belief and my own abilities is if I'm competing against you and you don't go visit them and I do, I've just ratcheted up my odds of winning the deal almost to hundred percent. Yeah. So I think that's, I don't think, I think that's a question that's open to see if we will get back to some level of onsite traveling to see the customer or not. Um, yeah, I, think, and I think customers will, yeah, I think customers will go for it if mm-hmm. it's, in that same context is right. It, it's something that helps them as well. Sure. Um, the second big thing, I think that the pandemic and everyone moving to video conferencing has forced sale, salespeople to be more on their game because when you're churning on the camera and now you're facing them, it's kind of like you're always having that face-to-face presentation that you would have had in person and you, there's less faking it. Right. You better come into it with an agenda and knowing your stuff and be prepared because I think it's going to become more obvious. So I think, quite frankly, that cameras on have made us all better sellers during this period of time. Yeah. To make us better. <laughs> That's an open question. I think it means that we have to be on our game, certainly more consistently. I don't, I haven't seen anything in the data to say that, you know, people are necessarily becoming better by this. But I think. I wonder, and I'm interested in your opinion on this, is is I think the interactions are going to start to change, right? When you're doing things more virtually, especially through video, that uh, they have to become a little less formal. Mm-hmm. I think it works to your, your advantage for the communications to be a little less formal. And I think things like, you know, video messaging, for instance, you know, is a great tool to use at this time where it's you're not necessarily taking somebody's time for a zoom call, but you are using video in a strategic way to advance an agenda or make a point uh, that you are better making through a video message than you would through an email. So when I say better, what I mean is to your point, like more on top of your, you're you're more likely to bring your a game than you were in the past when you're just faking yourself through a a, a phone call, right. And had all these different things in in front of you to kind of catch up 
on where you needed to be. So I think from a prep standpoint, being prepared and, um, you know, showing more of an A game, I think that's what it's, it's helped. But interestingly, you know, there was a study that came out, I don't know, April, March, you know, early in the pandemic, mm-hmm. but where, and I think it was in, maybe it had been mentioned in Fortune magazine, one of the business publications, and, and talked about that somebody had already done a study about the relative effectiveness of a phone call versus a Zoom call mm-hmm. in terms of your ability to, since you really you know, have this distance and even though you can sort of see people from the shoulder up, you really can't see body language and you know tone and so on. Where this study showed that actually, interestingly, that the phone was much better than a video call for being able to catch those nuances and pick them up. Hmm. You and said this I, was April or something like that? Yeah, but Zoom wasn't new then. Zoom been around for years, right? So it it's not has, like, but... So the sample size obviously could be larger now when they study it. But the contention was that actually there are fewer distractions when you're on the phone and more focus as opposed to typical behavior on a video call. Really? Huh. I would think I would have thought it would have been the exact opposite of that. Yeah, well, that's why it caught my attention because I would have thought the same thing too. But as you think about it, it's like, hmm. Andy, did that information come from the CDC? <laughs> no, the White House, I think. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I just, I, I, you talked about that customers are a remote first yeah. workplace and, mm-hmm. you know, the end of office centricity, which Shopify and others have, have mm-hmm. gone to. But do you think that workers want to work remotely? Oh, man. I'll tell you this, that I'm the type of person that um, thrives on human interaction, and I enjoy it. Don't get me wrong. Five days a week, I don't want to be in an office. Mm -hmm. But there is a portion of my time I do want to be in office. And there is a portion of my time I do want to co-mingle with my coworkers, not just to talk about work, but get to know them better. And I think during this period of time, we've all done these things where – you know, you do the the cocktail hour on Zoom and it's, it's just not the same. So I think for some people, 100% remote, 100% of the time will work. And for some people, it won't. And I think we're going to see some sort of a hybrid model um, moving forward. And, you know, one of the things we've kind of alluded to or talked about at customer is that, you know, we need to have some sort of office space. Don't know what that looks like, but we need something that people can, you know, come together with is it a bigger office, smaller office, co-working office? Don't know, but we have to get together at a period of times during the year. And what do we? And how do we do that? And where do we do that? So, but I, you know, from an individual standpoint, I think enterprise sales reps. You know, we've been working in the field for years. So I bet you, if you interviewed or surveyed enterprise remote, you know, sales reps, they're like nothing's really changed in my world. So I'm totally cool with it. Matter of fact. They're not asking me to come to headquarters every quarter, so even better for me, right? Mm-hmm. But for others, I think they, they're going to miss it, and maybe they won't be as good, you know? Yeah, well, I, I find it interesting is that, and again, to your point about enterprise sales reps have traditionally worked remotely in a hybrid model, though, you know, their office is their, their home, mm-hmm. as has been for most of us. Yeah, you know, as you interview somebody in those roles, mm-hmm. you, you screen for sort of the self-sufficiency and the resilience and so on that says, yeah, this person can can work in that environment, right? That I don't need to be, you know, micromanaging right. them. 
And yet we've sort of taken our entire sales force, both inside sales and you know SDRs and AEs, and we just threw them out. And we hadn't necessarily, you know, necessarily we had to, but threw them out into this work remotely environment, assuming they can all do it. Yeah, you know, if we enable them with the technology, they'll all be fine with it. Mm. And I think we're finding that's not really the case. Yeah. So I think you hit something that's an interesting topic, which is hiring through this and hiring, yeah. maybe knowing that you're not going to meet that person face to face um, and they're going to start remote. So the whole process is remote. And to your point, okay, I, I is that person going to be able to thrive in that environment or not? And I don't know how do you get to a yes or no before hiring somebody. Um, so I would think that any company that's hiring, depending on the role, needs to be even more careful before they make that offer to try to do the things to evaluate if it's going to be a, the right role for that person at this time. Can they really survive in this environment where for the next 18 months we've committed to being remote? So that's a challenge. Um, and I know, I know we've talked about it internally. I won't share specifics, but we certainly have brought it up as a topic of discussion and that, you know, we're going to have to take a different approach when interviewing and hiring for employees now. Yeah. Well, I think a number of companies uh, that I've spoken to, it just struck me they weren't being that mindful about it. It I think just, again, sort of this faith that, well, if people work remotely, but we enable them with the tools and technologies, then, you know, they'll be fine. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. What about people that just don't want to be working from home when they've got, you know, young kids around or, mm-hmm. you know, they're doing online education or, you know, both parents are working and they've got online. I mean, all those scenarios, it's like, I wouldn't make assumptions about that. And I think it's, you know, people have different personality types. I think most people are not suited to work remotely. I tend to agree with that, you know, and I think there's things you could probably do through, you know, those uh, personality tests and psychological tests you could do as part of the hiring process, just so both of you could figure out if this is going to be the right environment, quite frankly. But I think if companies aren't taking this seriously or thinking about how they want to approach that, um, I think they're making a big mistake and potentially making some hiring um, mistakes that could cost the company and cost, you know, um, you know, unfortunately that person that got hired to maybe get let go, right? Yeah. Yeah, again, I think part of this is just less that just emanates from sort of blind faith in the power of technology. Now, I say this from someone who spent my entire career in tech um, <laughs> and have benefited tremendously from it. But, but I don't know. Let me ask you this question. I, it's, this is one that has come up more and more as I'm thinking about it is, is you know, we've had this incredible explosion of technologies and sales, mm-hmm. sales-related and sales-adjacent fields with the customer support, success, and so on, marketing, obviously. Um, but I, I was reading this article from Paul Krugman mm-hmm. in the New York Times a couple months ago, and he said that, and showed it graphically, that basically productivity growth in the U.S. has slumped since the early 2000s. You know, it's gone from you know three and a half percent increase a year to like one in a small fraction. Uh, and the economists are sort of concluding that, that, you know, A, we're just not getting the bang from technology investments that we did before. And that basically it, it stopped after basically email, PCs, email, and broadband were the things that really drove productivity improvement. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, 
for the last 15 plus years, it's been kind of flat. And it's swing, yeah, are we are we not using all this great technology we have in sales in the right way? Well, I mean, the stats you're sharing sounds more broad, right? Um, sure, but you can't sales is not immune to to the trends. I well, let's say sales maybe hasn't advanced in being more productive. Let's make that argument. So the question is why if that's true, why is that the case? I think sometimes some organizations like they throw more solutions to solve problems. And sometimes it's not the tech that's going to solve the problems, right? We want to throw technology at problems, every problem we have. One of the things we talk about customers, that's what really happened in our industry, right? People kept creating different technologies to solve a specific problem as part of the overall customer service problem. So we had this legacy systems, point solutions, so on and so forth. They didn't talk together, so it made the process actually less efficient. So maybe relate that to sales. We've got, I mean, look at the look at the um, sales tech stack, right? I mean, year after year after year, it's not shrinking; it's growing. So <laughs> right. you know what? You know, how much is technology make us more efficient, or how much is technology making us less efficient? I could make an argument at our own company that we could probably have less solutions and be just as efficient or maybe more efficient, quite frankly. Yeah, I mean, efficient and effective, right? So I think one of the the great unanswered questions, and I think it'd be great if somebody had data on this or could do the research on it, but yeah, if you look at sales productivity from the classic sense of productivity, and you and I have talked about in the past, is, is you know, rate of output per unit of, in, unit of input. So you know, how many dollars of revenue are you generating per hour of sales time? Hmm. Yeah. And has that number changed appreciably over the last 40, 30, 20, 10 years? And has it? Do you know the answer to that? I don't. But I'm saying yeah. I, I think it'd be useful to see. My intuition is that it hasn't. Hmm. And I, I was having a conversation with a guy that runs a research firm and he doesn't have specific data on that either, but he's he's been also heavily involved in tech over the whole course of the last you know five tech revolutions or whatever since the the eighties. And yeah, his opinion is it's yeah you know, the same or less today than it so, was. So let me ask you a question. So do, sure. if, if let's say sales has become flat or less effective uh, productivity wise over the last two decades. Do you attribute the specialization of the different roles towards that? Meaning, you know, now we have folks that are SDRs and BDRs, and everybody plays a specific role to the process. Now, we're we're old enough to know that, like back in the day, hey, you, yeah. we, we, <laughs> that's true. You, <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> uh, we had to do everything. Didn't right? go, that didn't go. That didn't go the way I thought it was going yeah, to. Exactly. Yeah, well, you deserve that. Um, yeah, I did. Uh, you know, you had to go hunt and kill, right? You had to go out there. Okay, here's my list. Let me go after him. So, like, I, I I could make an argument. I bet you that the seller back in the old days was more effective at closing sales than the salesperson today. Because I'll just you make a quick point and I'll let you jump in here. Is that you know when you when you get a an lead or an opportunity from BDR, what do they want you to do with that? They want you to say yes. 
that's a great opportunity. I'm moving into a stage, whatever it is that advances the deal, right? That's what they want to do on every mm-hmm. lead or contact that they assign to you. But that's not the right way to move sales. And you'd be kidding yourself if you're not thinking that they'll influence that decision to get it into the pipeline. So I think that's an example, potentially, the specialization and role and what their goals are versus at the end of the day, really, what are we supposed to be doing in sales, which is qualifying, convincing, and closing, right? So you're in that business now. I am. So how are you going to address that issue? <laughs> well, it's funny. We had that. We, we started having a conversation about that today. And I started having a conversation about in my specific segment, which is, again, strategic, big accounts, that the definition of the BDR we have right now probably doesn't fit for the definition of what I need. Because you know, at our company and in most companies, the BDR role is looked at as a stepping stone to a selling role. And that's fine. I have no problem with that. But what I would prefer in a BDR, honestly, if someone is, is, sees this as a career, doesn't see it as a stepping stone, they see this role as what they're really good at, and that's what they want to do. Right. So that alleviates that, like, I need to do this job really well, or I have to do this or get these amount of opportunities because I want to get to the next role. No, this person sees it as like, no, I'm going to do my job well every day and do the right things every day because this is what my job is. Yeah, well, and there's several points in there that I think are important. One is this this idea that you can turn the SDR, BDR role into a career. I mean, I think that's that is a very important thought that needs to be explored more because right now for so many companies, it's like, yeah, publisher parish, you know, up around. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and which seems crazy to me because if you've got somebody that's been doing it for 10, 15, 20 years and they're, they love it and they're still good at it. And, and yeah, you know, they've kept abreast of the technology and they're using it to help themselves, you know, make connections and have conversations. We should be encouraging that, not discouraging that. And yeah, you know, so there's that sort of ageism that that plays into that to some degree. But but we're also seeing a trend, and you know, based on people I talk to on the show and others, is that sort of the return of the full life cycle seller. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that could be admittedly part of a team, right? That mm-hmm. could be a team with a you know two outside people with yep. one inside person, or yeah, you know, whatever. But mm-hmm. seeing that return of more full life cycle, and I, then I think the benefit to people being in that sort of career. SDR, BDR role is that they actually then start getting involved in actual selling. Yep. To your point, yep. is before because you know I think you very carefully use that word. Is is I, yeah I don't in general I don't see those roles as real sales roles, but uh, there's no reason they can't start becoming that, and then it becomes a true transition into a selling role if they want to be in that role for a while. You know, you you can be. My opinion is you can be in a sales role and not have to be a quota carrying closing sales rep, right? You may enjoy sales, but you may not enjoy the process of taking it from this stage to that stage, right? You may enjoy the part where I like starting relationships. I like building relationships. I like going out and meeting people. I like to understand, you know what I mean? Like, honestly, mm-hmm. if if we were taking this serious, which I am, and I'm really starting to think about it, it's like, it's like there's lots of people that would be great at the BDR role, one, because they want to do it, but also because they can master it over time as a real career 
and uh, enroll. Think about this. Why do you think some AEs are are really good? It's, it's certainly some are better than others just because of natural ability, but it takes time. They've learned mistakes. They learn through mistakes. They learn through, you know, their wins and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. But, you know, you get good over time. What do we do with BDRs and SD? SD? We, we get them up, ramped up, 12 to 18 months, you're either up to the next role, you're gone. Well, how can they ever get really good at that job if we're just telling them that, you know, you're doing the most important job in sales and you're only going to be in it for 12 to 18 months and then you're going to be either to the next role or out of the company. Like, I just think we've been looking at it wrong. And now don't get me wrong, some companies that might work fine, but if you are if you have a longer sales cycle, I think that is the wrong approach to take. Yeah, and this gets amplified, I think, also for AEs mm-hmm. is again, I don't have any any data on this, but just my observation is from talking to you know people on the show and outside the show, uh, you know, hundreds every year is is that yeah, people aren't staying long enough nope. in one position. And I think from a career standpoint, if you're listening to this, you're an AE, is, you know, temptation is not your friend in sales. When I look at my own career and the big advances I made, they happened when I stayed, Mm -hmm. when I resisted the temptation to go uh, to the next, you know, grab the brass ring or people dangling a bunch of money in front of me and so on, is when I stayed because I was saying, look, I've got something to learn here. And you know there are two big instances in my career where that you know played out hugely, and I think that's just it's this patience is something that I think yeah patience patience to know that you're not you're not um, you haven't learned what you could have learned in this role yeah I agree and eventually the you know, sort of the Peter principle kicks in if you're not learning anything and mastering new skills along the way. Yeah, yeah, you can jump from opportunity to opportunity to opportunity, but you may find yourself in your early and mid-30s sort of tapped out. Yeah, I'll tell you, I think the most important job of the head of sales is, is keeping the team together for as long as you can keep the team together. And the performers, right? Yeah. We know that's a winner. And I hate to bring this up. Ugh, uh, the New England Patriots. Why do you think they had such a great run? The run's over, by the way, guys. Why do you think they had such a great run? I mean, come on. The nucleus was all there, right? And they stayed, for the most part, the key players stayed together for 20 years or close to 20 years. I'll give you another example. My longest run I had as a sales leader was at Cheetah Mail, almost seven years. My -hmm. greatest run from a, 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 a revenue growth standpoint. And why is that? One, you know, great market, great product, good execution, but also my team for the most part was together for at least five years. I'm telling you, every performer was together for five years and we knew every opportunity was in the marketplace. Every account right. that was in play, who they were with, like you, it takes time. And I think you're absolutely right. There's, there's too much impatience. One from sales leadership to say, we didn't hit our numbers. So I need to make changes or I need to change the comp plan. And what does that do to sell salespeople? Like, Oh, here we go again, changing the comp plan, going to increase my quota, pay me less. I'm out of here. Right? right. So there needs to be a level of patience from the company level and, and from the sales management level of like being able to make that argument. Like guys, the most important thing is if I hire five reps that in, in, in three years from now, all five are here. Right. And we invest in them. And because I think that's how you have long sustained 
um, success. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah, it's it's if you're of course you agree, Andy, because I'm right. Because <laughs> you're right. There was no other. You're right. Why? Why do you even have to qualify? That? I don't know. Um, but but I think that that this is something that's just that perspective is not shared right. widely enough, and I think that it's it's really a crucial one for people listening to the show is that yeah yeah if you have a team that executes, you have to do whatever you can do to keep people on board. And stop sort of accepting it with a shrug of the shoulders that, oh, we're sort of a feeder for, for other companies. And, you know, you can tell to some degree by the person when you interview them. Mm. I mean, I, I don't know. I could tell the people who are sort of what I call the, the hired guns versus those that, that uh, want to find a place to work. In the type of environment you you talked about, you know, team environment where they were learning and people learning from each other, and they're taking on increasingly complex deals and and learning through doing that, as opposed to you know dipping a toe in the water and then leveraging that to the next opportunity. Mm. Yeah, I think if there's if there's one takeaway from this conversation, I implore all folks. I don't care what level you are, is like you know <clears throat> when things get frustrating or you're not having the best month, week, quarter, whatever it is, like. You need to think a little bit longer term and you need to give things a little bit more time. So if you are a BDR and you want to get to that seller role, be patient, master that craft first, because that will only provide you value long term. Right. And if you're a sales leader and you're out there and you have a team and some folks are underperforming, let's really figure out why they're underperforming. It's because they don't have an equal pipeline. It's because they're not trained right. Because I will tell you, you know, you could take a, if you could take a B player and make them a, a B plus player, right? Because they needed more time, they that will pay off. I can guarantee it. I already see people at, at customer that a year into it now are starting to hit their stride. They're starting mm-hmm. to take down the deals that I assume was expected when they were first hired. So there is a level of patience and seeing, and it's developing. It's happening, right? Um, it's, well, the patience is so critical because you know people develop at different rates. And yes. so you you interviewed this person, you made hopefully a wise choice, collective choice, everybody that talked to this person saying, yeah, this is a person that has potential to to succeed here. And then you'll get companies say, well, yeah, we're at the end of the onboarding period. They're just not, just not doing it. <laughs> it's like, you didn't hire somebody with a <laughs> cookie cutter. <laughs> and and this is a great lesson from from sports, right? Is is uh, I just remember this quote from a, a coach at an English Premier League team. He says, yeah, when we bring a young person into our system, we first coach the person, and then we coach the player. And so they've spent a lot of time investing to make sure this person has what they need from a skills and a you know, mental perspective to be able to succeed in that environment. So they enable them. And then they give them, having done that, because they wouldn't have brought them on if they didn't think they couldn't perform eventually. They have the patience to let this person develop. Yep. You know, I think we talked about in a previous podcast of like, you know, you know, SaaS startups, they don't provide you any training. <laughs> you come in, you, you might have a laptop, you might not have a lot, who, who knows, right? Like you don't get training. It's like, here you go. Here's 10 leads. Go follow up with them. Um, and right. oh, by the way, here's this huge document I created. Just follow this. Here's our, our playbook. Here's our Bible, right? It's like, no, 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 no. That's not the way you do it. I mean, certainly it's a way you can do it, 
but you better invest more time and patience in developing, to your point, the system and the, and the person. So I, I think we all, you know, again, I've always been in, and you have too, fast paced startups and it's a different world, right? Um, I, I get it. You have to hit numbers. There's high ex- expectations when sure. you take in a lot of money and all that stuff. But I think you're, we're all shortchanging the opportunity when we make quick decisions or aren't investing enough in patience um, to bring those people up to speed uh, over the time that they need, right? Yeah, no, I agree. And I, it starts at the top. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see CEOs that, that get that message, even in yeah, venture-funded startups, who just say, look, we're just not going to have this, this cutthroat environment where the salespeople feel like they've got the you know sword hanging over the back of the neck at all times you know waiting for the axe to fall yeah Ooh, i mixed metaphors swords and axes but <laughs> you get the point and no pun intended and it makes a difference i mean no one's under any illusion that they're accountable for performance yeah. but there's ways to do it that you either highlight it and i think some of the gamification stuff does that or it's yeah, you set the culture. You know, the performance is expected. But we hired you for a reason. So we're going to go the extra mile to make sure that you can be the person we thought you were going to be. Hey, here's a quick here's a quick way to look at it, right? You know this dirty little secret, right? At, at SaaS startup companies, I'm going to hire 10 salespeople, and I expect <laughs> that maybe only six of them are going to survive yeah. after 12 months. Yeah. How about instead of this, instead of hiring 10 salespeople, how about if we hire six of the right people, the right profile, and we expect that they're going to be here for five years. How about that? That's a total different mindset. Yeah. By the same token, why don't we you know, qualify, really qualify mm-hmm. six of the really good prospects, right? Yes. Really qualify them Imagine as opposed that. to you know, take all 10 into our pipeline mm-hmm. and call them prospects or opportunities. Yeah. All right, Vince. Andy. We're done. So congratulations on your new your new gig. Yeah. It's fun. I enjoy it. Yeah. Well, I'd say hi to Gabe Larson for me too. I will. I absolutely will. Haven't spoken with him for a long time. He's a busy guy, so Yeah. Well, you guys look sounds like you're doing well. So if people want to connect with you and your new new role, how can they do that? I think LinkedIn's always the best, right? Just I have a unique name, Vince Beasy, so you can find it's pretty I'm the only one on LinkedIn with that exact name. Um, <laughs> That's true. So all right. Well Vince, as always a pleasure. Thank you, Andy. Appreciate it. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. Ever so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my friend Vince Beast for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could also leave us a rating or review, let us know how we're doing. Well, we'd certainly appreciate that. And you can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help, and thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.